You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Happy New Year, Redeemer. <clears throat> Again, kudos to you guys for being here on the, on the morning after New Year's Eve. Although it is 1130, so it's not like we're like doing a sunrise service here, right? <laughs> but it is New Year's Eve. Um, how many people made it to midnight? Well, that's, a, that's pretty good. You guys are way better than me. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to admit to you, I'm, I'm doing okay today because I didn't. Um, I, was, I was done by 10 or 10.30, I think. I was like, that's what happens when you get my age, I guess. Um, of course, I, am, I, was, I was thinking this morning, I, was like, I just love, you guys might know, my, my daughter is the drummer back here. Okay, yeah, I know. I get to, I gotta, I get to be, I, I gotta say that, right? I just love it. Like when I preach and she drums, I, it's like I feel like those NFL. You're coming out of the tunnel and you're like, like a, ah! I'm like, I'm going. So I'm, I'm ready to go here. So it, I invite you today, if you have your Bibles, uh, and I hope you do, turn with me to Hebrews chapter three, and we're going to be continuing our study of the book of Hebrews today, and we're going to be looking at verses one through six. If you're not familiar, Hebrews is located kind of in the, almost to the very end of the Bible, right, be, right, uh, right before James, right after Philemon, if you can find that. Um, if you're using the Bible in front of you on the, on the floor, it's page 1002. So that's pretty easy. So as is our custom here, I would ask if you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 3, chapter, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Pray with me. Hmm. Father, thank you. Thank you for the privilege that we have today that is the first thing we do is to, on New Year's Day, is to join with our brothers and sisters in Christ and worship you. God, would you, would you speak through me today the truth of our text, that it would stir our hearts to treasure you more and treasure everything else less. Father, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your law. And it's in your precious holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I feel kind of blessed today because I think, uh, I think you could make the, the, the case that our, our text today contains possibly the thesis for the entire book of Hebrews. And for that matter, all of Scripture. And that thesis, of course, as you see by the screen, is, is stated in two powerful words, Consider Jesus. I mean, I think those two words really define all of Christianity, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's why we gather as a church, to consider Jesus. 
It's the aim of every God-honoring sermon. It's why we read Scripture and pray. It's, it's why we meet in small groups. It's our aim when we share our faith. It is Christianity in two words. And it's almost certainly the aim of the writer of Hebrews. You see, he's writing to, um, he's writing to a church of mostly new Hebrew believers who are starting to struggle with their faith. Because you see, as Jews, they enjoyed a, a level of acceptance and protection under Roman law because as Jews, they didn't challenge the supremacy of Caesar. But as Christians who were worshiping the recently crucified and resurrected Jesus and worshiping him as being supreme over everything and everyone, they were starting to experience the beginnings of persecution for their faith. And just like their forefathers before them, who had quickly begun to have second thoughts about leaving Egypt when things started to get a little tough, these converted Hebrews were beginning to look back longingly to the comfort and the protection that they enjoyed in Judaism. So the goal of the writer of Hebrews is, is to take their eyes off the past and to focus them back solely on Christ. That's why we saw in the first chapter of Hebrews this soaring proclamation of the deity and the supremacy of Jesus over all things. And from there, he begins to make this very calculated case for the supremacy of Jesus over everything that they esteemed as Jews. We saw last week in the last couple of weeks in chapter 2 that he made the case that Jesus is better than the magnificence of the angels. And in our text today, he turns his attention to one of the most revered figures in all of Jewish history, Moses. You see, to understand the text of the message, you must, you must see Moses through the eyes of the Hebrews. To Jews, Moses was the great leader who led Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He's the author of the Torah, and he's the giver of the law, which is the cornerstone of the Jewish faith. And on top of that, Moses had a relationship with God that was unparalleled. In Numbers 12, 6 through 8, God says this to the Hebrews. Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? In Exodus 33:11 it says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. See, God speaks to us in many ways, but, but only Moses did he speak face to face mouth-to-mouth, friend-to-friend. Moses is a big deal. So the, the point of our text today is not to diminish the greatness of Moses. The point is to prove the all-encompassing supremacy of Jesus, he decides to compare him to maybe the greatest man other than Jesus ever to live. He's saying, in light of the great Moses, consider Jesus. Now, before we get into the specifics of the text, I think it's important first to examine the phrase, consider 
Jesus. Other translations phrase it like this. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Think carefully about this Jesus. Set your minds on Jesus. And keep your focus on Jesus. You see, consider is not a, it's not a flippant term to casually think about something or, or just to give it a passing glance. It's a call for an all-consuming fixation. For you action movie people, think of it like, like missile lock, you know, the fighter jets. And once they got missile lock on a jet, you're, you're done. It, it, it's not leaving it. As an event filmmaker, I like to think of it like the track focus on my cameras, where all I have to do is, is touch the face of the subject on my screen, and that subject will stay in focus regardless of where it goes. I love it. And that's the aim of the author of Hebrews. And that's as he's saying, take your focus off the angels. Take your focus off Moses, off the law, off tradition, off of everything that Judaism offers, and focus them solely on Jesus because he is worthy of your undivided attention. And therefore, to make his case, he does a compare-contrast study of Moses and Jesus. Now, to make it more memorable, I've kind of summarized this comparison study with four words that start with the letter P. He compares their position, their production and possession, and he compares their person. So look again at verse 1. <clears throat> therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. So the first thing we should note, by the phrase holy brothers who share in the holy in a heavenly calling, is that he's primarily addressing those who identify themselves as followers of Christ. Holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling. He then begins to make his case by identifying Jesus' position as an apostle and as a high priest. And these are two very different positions, and they're both very significant. Now, when we think of an apostle, most of us think of the 12 men who were chosen by Jesus to be his closest companions during his earthly ministry, right? <clears throat> However, the word apostle comes from the Greek word apostolos, meaning one who is sent out. So here he is making <clears throat> a similarity between Jesus and, Mo and Moses as both being sent from God. In Exodus 3, 13 and 14, we see the apostolic calling of Moses. It says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And likewise, in John 20, 21, it records the apostleship of Jesus. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So you see, both are messengers sent by God. But we know from Scripture that there is a huge difference in the scope of their sending. You see, Moses was sent to deliver the Hebrews at that specific time in history from their slavery to Pharaoh and to lead them to the promised land of Israel. Jesus was sent to deliver people from every tribe and nation and generation from the slavery of sin 
and to lead them to the promised land of heaven. Advantage Jesus, right? But you see, he doesn't stop there because he also refers to Jesus' position as high priest. And here's where the gap really begins to widen. Because, well, Jesus is both an apostle and a high priest. Moses was only an apostle. See, in Old Testament times, the high priest was the mediator between God and man. Well, an, ap- well, an apostle represents God to man. The high priest represents man to God. He's the one who offered sacrifices at the temple to atone for the sins of the people. And of course, if you know the story of Moses, you know that his brother Aaron was the first high priest, not Moses. So you see, Jesus is the only one who is both God's bridge to man and man's bridge to God. And it doesn't stop there. Because as we'll see even in more detail in the coming weeks, Jesus was greater than any Jewish high priest. Because you see, their priesthood was limited to making atonement for specific sins, for a specific people, for a specific span of years. But Jesus was the greater high priest because he makes atonement for all sin, for all people, for all time. And greater yet, unlike earthly high priests who made atonement for sin with the blood of animals, what did Jesus do? Jesus made atonement for sin with his own blood. He wasn't just the high priest. He's also the sacrifice. The Jews separated the Passover where Moses promised the people that they would be spared of the wrath of God for one night if they would put the blood of a spotless lamb over their doorpost. But what was Moses' job? He was just the messenger. Jesus has promises that he will be, we will be spared the wrath of God for eternity if we cover our lives with his spotless blood that he shed for us on a Roman cross. He wasn't just the messenger He was the means of salvation. So no disrespect to Moses, but hopefully you're starting to see this is not a fair fight, right? And next we compare the production and the possession of Moses and Jesus. Look again at verses two through four. Jesus, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Okay, so what we know is there seems to be a lot of talk of houses here. So let's try to break this down. First, let's examine Moses. If you remember just a few minutes ago, back, going back to Numbers 12, 7, we recall that it said, not so with my, mo- my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. So again, the author first acknowledges the similarity between Jesus and Moses. Both are faithful to the house of God. But just as before, the similarity drastically diminishes when you consider the scope of their faithfulness. The first thing to keep in mind is he's talking about two very different houses. In Hebrew terms, the house of God always refers to the nation of Israel. The house of God was God's chosen people, the Jewish people. 
But in the New Testament terms, the house of God always refers to the universal church, those called by God throughout all of history from every nation and tongue. So think of it like this. It's like comparing a small-scale model to the actual building. You know, prior to construction, many builders will, will create a, a, a small miniature model of the structure that is to be built so that people can better visualize what the actual structure will look like. And that's what we have going on here. God's design for the nation of Israel was to serve as a small-scale model of the actual house or the people of God. So you can think of Moses as the first guy who oversaw the care of the model so that people will be able to clearly visualize what the actual house of God would look like one day. Moses was a very faithful steward of a very small-scale model. Now enter Jesus, who is not just another temporary caretaker of the miniature model. He's the designer of the actual house. And he's not just a designer, he made and selected all of the material that the house is built with, and he's building the entire house by himself. You see this in Matthew 16 when Jesus asks his disciples who they think he is. And he says in verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Do you hear the power in those words? He says, Peter, you're right. I am the Christ. I am the son of the living God and I am building me a magnificent house that will stand forever. He says, Peter, I'm the cornerstone, and you get to be the first brick I lay. Around you, I will begin to build my house brick by brick from saints that I have created and chosen from every tribe and tongue from the beginning of creation to its end, including Moses, who is a good and faithful servant. But as the great theologians Pink Floyd famously said, He's just another brick in the wall, right? And the final comparison in our text is their personhood. Look at verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So once again, he starts by acknowledging the similarity that both Moses and Jesus are faithful members of God's house. But what distinguishes them is their role in the house. Note the wording. Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. Jesus is a faithful son over God's house. One is a servant. One is a son. One is in the house. One is over the house. Big difference. I mean, you know, I just kind of noticed this just now. One other thing you notice is it's the past tense. No, Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus is faithful. Yet another compare and contrast. 
And let's not overlook what the text says Moses' role as a servant in the house was. What was his role? To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So what were the things that were to be spoken later? Let's look at the words of Jesus himself. First in John 5, 45 and 46, Jesus says this, do not think that I will accuse you, do, I'm sorry, do not think that I will accuse you the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. You get this? Jesus is making the same argument that our text is making. He's saying, you guys have set your hope on Moses, but don't you see, Moses was just the messenger. I'm the message. And then secondly, we see in Luke 24, verses 25 through 27, this is the beautiful passage where after his resurrection, Jesus is walking with a couple of Jews on the road to Emmaus. And he says to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So you see, Moses was definitely one of the greatest men to ever live. But in the big picture, Moses, like you and me, is just a small character in the greatest story ever told. And the story is about Jesus. So you may be thinking, okay, I get it. Jesus is better than Moses. Woohoo! Go, Jesus. But how does that impact my life? I'm glad you asked, because that leads us to the thrilling conclusion of our text today. You see, after all the discussion about the house of God, our text concludes in verse 6 by saying this And we. Here we go. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Hmm. Now, if, if you're like a lot of people, you probably read that with some mixed feelings, right? I mean, it's good to hear that like Peter and Moses and all the great saints of history, that, that we are also part of the great house of God. But you're like, oh. Like that, if. I mean, that sounds like there's maybe a chance that, that maybe I'm not part of the house of God. I can tell you if that makes you queasy, you're really not going to like what it says a few verses later in verses 13 and 14 of Hebrews 3. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. There's that if clause again. You may be thinking, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought you guys said that Scripture taught you can't lose your salvation. But these verses kind of sound like you can, so, so which is it? I can tell you this, that these verses will either be a source of great peace and assurance, or there will be a source of great anxiety and certainty. And it all depends on what your confidence and your boasting is in. See, if you come from a belief like I used to, that you were saved because, because you made the wise decision to choose Christ, 
and your confidence is based on you being able to continue to choose and serve Christ throughout your life, then like I used to be, you should probably be a little nervous because that's a lot of pressure on you. But if Scripture is true, then then you are on mission impossible because there is zero chance that you can sustain your salvation on your own with your great virtue and your good works. You see, if any one of us was capable of losing our salvation, we would lose it 100% of the time within seconds of obtaining it, right? But on the other hand, the if clause can be amazingly reassuring if you consider the words of Romans and Ephesians that says, no one seeks for God. No one does good. Not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Now, I know as a, you know, as, as a parent, I don't know how many times I've always told my kids, you know, don't use always the never statements. You know, they're just like, it's always exaggeration. But how many times do you hear these definitive, no one, no one seeks for God, no one does good, all is sin, you're dead, you're not, not of your own doing, not a result of works. You see, the beauty of the gospel is that we don't come to Christ. Christ comes to us. That's the gospel. We're dead, but he brings us to life. And additionally, in Philippians, Paul says that he's sure that he who began the good work in you will, definitive, will be faithful to complete it. And if that's not definitive enough for you, listen to the words of Jesus in John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, get this, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Isn't that reassuring? You see, the confidence that we have in our salvation isn't based on our profession of him, but of his possession of us. The if clause is not if we by our piety and devotion can sustain our salvation until the end. Rather, it refers to if, in fact, we have, by God's great mercy, been transformed from dead in our trespasses to being alive together with Christ. If, indeed, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are saved, then as the song we just sang a few minutes ago so wonderfully says, no no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. And therefore, the one sure evidence of authentic faith is continuance. I like the way Pastor Alistair Begg puts it. He says this, The question is not one of the retention of salvation based upon a persistence of faith, 
but of the possession of salvation as evidenced by a continuation of faith. Did you get that? Let me, let me read it again. Let that soak in. The question is not one of the retention of salvation based upon a persistence of faith, but of the possession of salvation as evidenced by a continuation of faith. John MacArthur says it like this, continuation is the proof of the reality. You can always tell who are really the house of God because they stay there. And if that's not good enough, let's listen to Scripture. John 8, 31, if you abide or continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Colossians 1, 21 through 23, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Here it is again. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, what does it say? They would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. This reminded me, as I, as I studied this, it kind of reminded me of, the, of uh, Pilgrim's Progress, the great John Bunyan allegory. And in Pilgrim's Progress, if you're familiar with it, you may remember that the lead character in the story is, is Christian, who heeds the advice of, a, of the character evangelist, and he flees the city of destruction with his gaze fixed on entering and arriving at the celestial city. And along the way, Christian is eagerly joined by, by several others. But what they didn't know was that the road to the celestial city went directly through places like the Slough of Despond, of Difficulty Hill, the Valley of the Shadow of Death, and Vanity Fair. It's not just a magazine. <laughs> at, at each of these challenges, some of his companions either turned back, they got lured into a different path, or they were destroyed by trying to take shortcuts. Only Christian and his companions, faithful and hopeful, led by God through the guidance of evangelists and the shining ones, arrived at the celestial city where they were admitted by presenting their credentials that they had received at Mount Calvary. You see, Bunyan's point is that the trials and temptations are God's gracious litmus test to either give us assurance that he is in fact drawing us to himself or to expose the fact that something else is the true treasure and the true hope of our lives. You see, for the Hebrews in our text, they were being drawn off course by the magnificence of, of angels and the greatness of Moses. You see, the author of Hebrews is saying, like evangelists in Pilgrim's Progress, he's imploring them, keep your gaze locked on Jesus. Not on all of the past stuff, not on Moses, not on angels. We all know Jewish people love tradition. Tradition is great, but it's not better than Jesus. And trials and temptations will either affirm our hope in God or they will reveal our hope in something else. They show that God is either the true end of our hope 
or a means to another end. That's why the book of James begins with the words, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Why would he say that? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, continuance. Then a few verses later, he follows it up with, blesses the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. When diagnosed with a debilitating or life-threatening illness, there have been countless many throughout the generations who have abandoned their faith and angered that God would allow something so terrible to happen to them. And in doing so, they reveal that their true God is health, and Jesus is just a means to achieve and maintain their health. While others, like our sweet sister Kelly Tadero, whose body is just terribly broken, yet amid great pain says, I cannot despise the very thing that draws me closer to my Savior. And thus she affirms that illness is ultimately just a deeper means of communion with Christ. There's been many over the years who have lost spouses and even young children to tragic deaths. And so many have bitterly turned away from God, saying that a loving God would never allow such a horrific thing to happen And then in doing so, they showed that their loved ones were their true treasure. And God is just a means to protect and sustain their treasure. But then there's others like Horatio Spofford, who upon visiting the spot in the ocean where his four daughters drowned in a shipwreck, he penned the words that we so love to sing, when peace like a river attendeth my way, and when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And in doing so, he affirms that even the pain of death is but a means to lock his gaze on the true treasure of his soul. For some, it's the loss of wealth or security that turns their hearts away from God. Others, it's the opposite. It's success or fame or affluence that draws them away. Either way, they prove that something other than God is their supreme desire. While others, when dealing with loss or affluence, can say like the Apostle Paul, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, facing plenty or hunger, abundance or need. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. Continuance is indeed the proof of reality. I remember not long ago listening to a to a Ask Pastor John podcast where John Piper was discussing this very issue, and it struck me when he said these words. He said, If in the coming years I commit apostasy and fall away from Christ, it will not be because I have not tasted of the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the miracles of God. I have drunk his word. The spirit has touched me. I have seen his miracles, and I have been his instrument for a few. But 
if over the next 10 or 20 years, John Piper begins to cool off spiritually and lose his interest in spiritual things and become more fascinated with making money and writing Christless books, if I buy the lie that a new wife would be exhilarating and that the children can fend for themselves and that the church of Christ is a drag and that the incarnation is a myth and that there is one life to live, so let us eat, drink, and be merry. If that happens, then know that the truth is this. John Piper was mightily deceived in the first 50 years of his life. His faith was an alien vestige of his father's joy. His fidelity to his wife was a temporary passion and compliance with social pressure. His fatherhood was the outworking of natural instincts. His preaching was driven by the love of words and crowds. His writing was a love affair with fame. And his praying, his praying was the deepest delusion of all, an attempt to get God to supply the resources of his vanity. So as I close and we move to a time of communion, musicians and community attendants, you may take your place. I would challenge each of you with the words of 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So as we come to the communion table of remembrance, please, my plea to all of you is consider Jesus. If you have never thought much about the claims of Christ, then I, then I urge you today to consider Jesus as the only one who can fill the emptiness in your life that you most assuredly feel. This communion time indeed has no value to you and you would be insincere to participate. But Scripture says that if you confess or acknowledge your sins to him, that he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. If you have never done that before, today I urge you, I plead with you, consider Jesus. If you have more questions or would like to pray, I encourage you to come talk to me or one of the other pastors here at the front after the service. And maybe you're here today and you, and you made a profession of faith once in your life. Maybe you were baptized. But you know in your heart that Jesus is not the supreme treasure of your life. So whether indeed you are not a follower of Christ or, or like all of us who have temporarily taken our focus off Christ at times, it's revealed in whether or not you choose to continue in your sinful pursuits or like Christian and his companions in Pilgrim's process, progress, you turn back and you refix your focus on Christ. You see, all of us sin every day. Truth is, I, I battle gluttony and lust almost every day of my life. Every day my life is filled with a food fight. It's not about throwing mashed potatoes across the room. The question is, do you hate the sin in your life? And you daily fight to kill it? Or do you embrace or excuse or diminish what you know in your heart is sin? And if that describes you, I urge you today to return to the path that leads to God. As you partake of communion, please consider Jesus as far greater than anything that may be currently bringing you temporary pleasure on earth. 
And if upon examining yourself, you see evidence that Christ is indeed holding you fast through the trials and the temptations of life, then I invite you to come to the communion table in remembrance and celebration that like Peter and Moses and countless saints throughout the ages, you are indeed part of the great house of God. But at the same time, I urge you to remember the warning that we heard within the last week or two in Hebrews 2, to pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Notice that the word there is neglect, not reject. You can only neglect what you profess to own. So I urge you even more as believers to consider Christ. Fix your gaze on Christ, lest neglecting becomes evidence of rejecting. Fix your gaze solely on him. So this 1 Peter 1 says, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So church, as as we enter 2017, my plea to all of you, consider Jesus. Pray with me. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.